I'm your host, William Tapley. Also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here. Just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, November 26, 2012. It'll be Advent before we know it. Yeah, we're going to ease into the week here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage. In fact, there is a plethora. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Think of the movie The Three Amigos. There's a plethora of... A false teaching that's invaded the church, and unfortunately, it's happening in places that are extremely popular by very well-liked Christian authors, teachers, uh, and, and and the like. And unfortunately, this is this stuff has to be challenged, and the reason it needs to be challenged is because Scripture tells us to test all things. Even I get tested. In fact, I ought to be tested. I, I'm not exempt from any of these testing exercises. If what I say doesn't square with Scripture, and I'm telling you that Scripture says something, and when you look it up, it goes, that's not what Scripture says. Well, then you know what? I'm wrong, and i got to repent, and, uh, and just like anybody else. So, okay, it, it, it feels like trying to get back on a bicycle again after being off the bicycle for for more than a week. It, you know, here in the United States, we uh, celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday last week. So I had Thursday off, I had Friday off, I had Saturday off, Sunday. And so you know, I was very busy, very productive. But um, getting back into the, the habit of doing radio and producing a program and stuff like that, it, <laughs> today it just... Felt, I felt rusty, you know, plus I'm getting old, but, you know, the creeping decrepitude thing is just no fun. But anyway, so, you know, you get on the bike and you look at the bike, oh, that's rust. And so you have to kind of knock the rust off and, make, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So today what I decided to do is we're going to kind of 
ease our way back in, ease our way back into doing fighting for the faith. There are quite a few things that we could be doing and talking about, but I, rather than just rushing to get to all of that stuff, I, I figured, you know, hey, you know, we got time here. We have a full broadcast week ahead of us. In fact, uh, middle of the week, um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, uh, Jonathan uh, Fisk, uh, the, the Reverend Fisk, uh, regarding his new book, Broken. And, uh, and it, it, in fact, that thing comes out in like a, in just a couple of weeks. So I'm really excited about that. I have a preview copy of it and it's it, just a great book. And, uh, and if, if one that is worth reading because it challenges like the seven major rules in Christianity that we ought to really be breaking. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, kind of in, uh, Jonathan, see, he's a ninja and I'm a pirate. We're not supposed to get along. But, uh, yeah, I understand, you know, how that because we're both Lutherans, that trumps whether we're pirates or ninjas. Oh, man. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We we in reality have quite a bit of ground to cover. Um, I'm still in the process of writing my short uh, ebook It's kind of like the longest theological uh, bit that I've written um, I, you know, I've, when it comes to theology, I've written blog posts and, uh, and articles and, and things like, but, uh, when it comes to theology and apologetics, I have yet to actually write something that's substantively long. And so, uh, it's, it, this is one of those things where I find writing academically is a little bit easier than actually doing theology because, um, you can't assume that you, your audience, uh, has the same foundation that you do. So you have to bring them up to speed on particular things, but I'm writing a, uh, it's, it's going to be a short ebook against uh, Robert Morris's teaching. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, looking at Robert Morris's recent appearances at uh, Elevation Church. That's uh, Stephen Furtick's church. But uh, let's, in fact, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We'll get into it and, uh, and then we will, uh, we'll just, and then just go for it. Um, I have an email that I would like to get to. I, we're going to be listening to somebody from the Patricia King gang talking about healing for digestive disorders. Now, if, uh, if you live in the United States and you just celebrated Thanksgiving and, um, you overate and you're suffering now from digestive disorders, then, uh, well, we've got a word from God for you, apparently. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, and then what we'll do is we'll take our break after that. And when we come back from the break, we're going to be doing a segment called Debunking Robert Morris's Principle of Multiplication, Part 1. Debunking Robert Morris's Principle of Multiplication, Part 1. See, uh, the, the past two Sundays in a row, Robert Morris has been the featured speaker at Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is the church where... Um, Stephen Stephen Furtick uh, holds court. Now, by the way, over the weekend, we uh, we discovered a word that we're going to be using here at Fighting for the Faith, because if you've noticed that I have a hard time during our sermon review time calling certain people pastors because they're just not, Um, um, over the weekend, uh, my family and I, one of our favorite things to do when we get together with family and friends and when you know when we eat and and just celebrate and enjoy each other's company one of the things we like to do is we play a game called Balderdash. Uh, you're probably familiar with the game and what the game basically you have these words that 
probably most likely are not you don't know the uh, the definition of they they've words that have fallen out of use in the english language or they you know they're you can they're used in other languages uh in in they're, they're brought in so you you probably don't know the definition of them and so the idea is is a, is a as a group of people, you sit around a table, and one person knows the uh, the what the, the real definition of the word and writes it down, while everybody else is given the word how to write and, and how it's spelled, and then they either know what it means, so they can actually write the definition itself. But nine ninety nine times out of a hundred, they have no clue what the word means, and so they invent a definition, and then they turn in their uh, definitions to the person who was supposed to read the uh, the the words and the definitions. And then after the definitions are read, it's it's hilarity ensues. It's just a great game. But uh, in the course of playing over the weekend, playing uh, Balderdash, we came across a word that's real meaning is exactly, well, the word and the meaning that we really need. And the word itself is martext, M-A-R-T-E-X-T, martext. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the word means. If you want to know what it means, look it up. And what what I'm going to try to do is see if I can remember to do this again. I'm getting older, and creeping decrepitude has crept upon me, so I may not be consistent at first with this. But when I come across a sermon that I'm reviewing or a masleration that I'm reviewing from somebody who is ugh, just I'm having a hard time calling them a pastor, I won't call them a pastor anymore. I will refer to them as a martext, M-A-R-T-E-X-T. Again, look it up. It's, I think you'll find that the word fits. <laughs> so, anyway, so, so okay, so uh, where, where was I? Well, we're talking about what we're going to do today. Okay, so we're going to be uh, part one today of debunking Robert Morris's principle of multiplication. We're going to be taking a look at a portion of his teaching you know, that laid the foundation for his principle of multiplication multiplication, which is taught, by the way, in his book, The Blessed Life. And he was uh, teaching this at uh, Stephen Furtick's church. And Stephen Furtick, uh, Martext Stephen Furtick, uh, holds court there at, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Anyway, and so I think it's significant that he taught this. And I'm going to take the time to really deconstruct and show you just right off the bat his first concepts. He's going to be uh, preaching uh, from uh, Luke chapter 9, the, the feeding of the 5,000. This is the same text that he was preaching from at Saddleback earlier in the year, and so it's really been that amount of time since we've covered it. Now, the, some of the text, some of the, uh, the uh, information that we'll be covering, we've covered in previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, but it's been a while since we've done so. So I wanted to get something new into the mix and, into the mix and then also... Uh, take the time to really dive into this and show you what it is that he's doing. Um, he, he has discovered missing data in the uh, in the Luke text regarding the feeding of the five thousand in Luke chapter nine, and ha- apparently, I mean, he, maybe he found the Q text. He, he, you know, those of you familiar with the uh, higher critics who claim that uh, the Gospels all have a common origin document called Q, but no one's ever had, no one has ever found a copy of Q. Uh, but they claim that you know this is you know it's Q. So I'm I'm thinking that maybe Robert Morris found Q. But anyway, so we're going to be taking a look at that, and then we're going to be doing a sermon review from a um, from Martext Jamie McMillan from Malvern Christian Assembly in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and he's going to be preaching uh, a sermon masleration entitled "The Story of Gideon." And what's interesting about this? is that uh, partway through the sermon, in fact, the reason I chose the sermon to review it is specifically because 
um, the uh, the latest exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry um, has the, well uh, Martex Jamie McMillan in it, and um, and well he's taken the uh, uh, Gangnam style music and has come up with a memorable and relevant. <clears throat> <clears throat> Hang on a second. <clears throat> it's really he failed in the whole relevance department there. Um, a way of helping us understand the Gideon story, and so it's uh, whoop whoop them, or you know, like whoop the devil, beat the devil, whoop them, um, Gideon style. It's yeah, it's partway through the sermon. So if you haven't seen that Museum of Idolatry exhibit, uh, go to uh, a little leaven dot com. I am the curator of the Museum of Idolatry. The a little leaven dot com. The and the name of the exhibit is Whoopum Gideon Gideon style. So, yeah, if you want to <clears throat> waste a few minutes of your time and at the end of it want to beat your brains against your desk, go right ahead. But anyway, so with that, we are going to dive into the program proper again. We have a lot of ground to cover today. Boom. Right. Our first, e- uh, actually, our first and only email today comes to us via, well, uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh, Don from Kongsvinger Lutheran Church up there in uh, North Dakota. Actually, I think they're in the Minnesota side in Oslo, but of the of the river there. But he, he writes to me regarding the uh, the Beatles mass, and he had a comment and a question regarding it that I think is worth passing along. Don writes, he says, uh, Chris, I heard the Beatles Mass, ELCA San Francisco Church, while preparing for our adult Sunday school class discussion on Articles 7 and 8 of the Augsburg Confession, and I used the video as a discussion point this morning. The Reformers affirmed that the sacraments were efficacious even when administered by hypocrites and wicked men. This is absolutely true. They did that. And this goes back to uh, an earlier heresy that was actually put down uh, in the ancient church, but you're right, that's true. And they also agreed that it was not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men, should be everywhere alike. Yes, this is absolutely true. They did say that. And furthermore, the church is the congregation of the saints in which the gospel is rightly taught, mm-hmm, and the sacraments are rightly administered. That's Article 7, by the way, the Augsburg Confession. Correct, I agree, yes. He says, now, given that the words put to hey, the Hey Jude melody were not necessarily blasphemous the apostasy therefore is that this church allows an apparent non-repentant he she and see there's a little ambiguity there um to serve as pastor based on this point alone the gospel is evidently not being rightly taught in this church and the sacrament is not being rightly administered independent of the communion format this is absolutely true is that your take on this bizarre service and the basis of the apostasy i would don absolutely that is absolutely correct and, you know, that, I think, is the bigger offense. Now, there's several ways that you can peel this banana, if you would. Um, but the main the main idea here is that in these ELCA congregations that are gay-affirming or who have a practicing, unrepentant, homosexual or transsexual serving as pastor, then you, you absolutely know for a fact then the, that the gospel itself is not being rightly proclaimed. Instead, what's happening is is that people are being literally left uh, to continue to be dead in trespasses and sins or enslaved to sin. And so as a result of it, that they, they go from being schismatic to actually being heretical. Um, and in, in a situation like that, you, you we can't, I mean, 
the gospel's gone, the sacraments are gone, the whole place is gutted. It's become what I think Jesus would refer to using his phrase from Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, a synagogue of Satan. But let me I want to kind of circle back and, and kind of point something out here. And that's this. When we look at Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, okay, the Apostle Paul, when you read his uh, his letters, when you read his theology, when you read his contribution to the New Testament text, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the way, um, then what happens is is that you see in Pauline theology him teasing out. And by the way, there's no, really there's no such thing as Pauline theology. Um, there's he, what I, and what I mean by that is this is that there is a uniformity to the overall theology of all of the authors, and to pit one biblical author against another is actually to do violence to the biblical text and biblical theology as a whole. But what we find in Paul's writings, in his text, is a very important concept regarding sin. And that's this, that sin is slavery. Paul didn't just invent this on his own. Okay, Jesus himself taught this, and you know, I'll kind of tease this out. And I think this really is where the greater error is. And if, see, I'm convinced if that church in San Francisco, first of all, understood what the biblical gospel is, understood the implications that has regarding the sin, the sin in their own life, that they wouldn't have, you know, an unrepentant practicing um, transsexual as their pastor. And as a result of not having an unrepentant transsexual you know, as their pastor, they wouldn't be treating the sacraments so flippantly. Does that, does that make sense? I, I think it all hinges together, but it, it, you, you go back upstream. You go back upstream in this thing. Um, first and foremost, they deny, you know, flat out deny the authority of Scripture. And the way they do it is by constantly demeaning it, deconstructing it uh, to the point where the clear passages that would forbid an unrepentant practicing homosexual from being your pastor um, have no meaning anymore. And therefore, you can bring somebody in who is an unrepentant practicing homosexual. But Paul who is the great defender of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Paul, the, the, this is the guy who, who literally went toe-to-toe with the Judaizers, had the audacity to rebuke the apostle Peter to his face when he was not acting in accord with the gospel. Um, the apostle Paul, his theology regarding sin and, you know, and, you know, and, and answering the question that, con- that, would con- that constantly comes up, by the way, a regular question, if you preach the biblical gospel without somebody asking this question, you may not have preached it right. And and I, I'm saying that from personal experience, and although that's not exactly um, the, the indicator there, but I can, I can rarely think of a time where I have taught this publicly where somebody hasn't come up to me and said, but wait a second. If we're really saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, are you saying that we are free to sin? You see, you, you preach the biblical gospel and you're going to get that. Paul he, Paul himself received several people, you know, kind of an ongoing thing for him, who would ask that question. And he actually anticipates it in the book of Romans. 
So Romans chapter uh, you know, 1, 2, and 3, Paul just basically lays it out. All human beings are born dead in trespasses and sins. And then he goes on to say that, that – and are justified freely by God's grace, that the purpose of the law is to show us our sin and, um, and that, that, that nobody is going to be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. And he, he then goes in chapter 4 to talk about how Abraham was declared righteous by faith. And in 5, it just does this brilliant job of laying out law and gospel perfectly. And then we get to the question. So Paul preaches the gospel, and he gets to the question, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. So what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that may, grace may abound? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. The answer is absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? And see, this, I think, is the is the real rub. And I think this is where, uh, I think a lot of folks misunderstand what the Bible and the New Testament teaches regarding sanctification, okay? The biblical categories um, regarding sin you know, and the description of it is sin is death. Sin is slavery. Okay, so when somebody asks the question, um, "Are you since if we're if you're saying that we're saved by grace alone through faith, does that mean that we're free to sin?" Now, listen to the question: free to sin. Paul would say absolutely not, and here's the reason why: because when you read Paul and even Jesus on this. It's clear that there's no such thing as freedom in sin. Sin is itself slavery. Free to sin is an oxymoron. And that's kind of the, the gist of his, his argument here. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, that's Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There it is again. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So... In our baptisms, we die with Christ, and since we've died, we're, we've now died to sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you have, are not under the law, but you are under grace." So here's the idea, okay? Christian sanctification really has as its true center salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. If you mess up the gospel that, that Christ died for our sins, 
in accordance with the scripture, that he was raised again on the third day for our justification. If you mess that up, then you're going to, by default, mess up sanctification. And there's there's a plethora, there's that word again, plethora of ways in which you can screw up sanctification. But the biblical passages are clear, and that's this, that sin is death, sin is slavery, okay? And that Christ, by his death, and because when we're baptized, we're baptized into Christ's death, we have therefore been set free from slavery to sin. So here's the great here's the great problem. In the churches that are gay affirming, in the churches that basically say, Oh, listen, you know, you you, you can be a Christian and you can be gay, they don't understand the gospel, and as a result of it, they don't understand sanctification, and they don't understand the danger that they're in, because scripture itself is clear that this is death and this is slavery. If you are in Christ, then you have been set free from sin. And you are not to present your bodies or the parts of your bodies in you know, enslaved to sin so that it can reign in you and reign over you and enslave you all again. And so the real tragedy there, the real apostasy is, is that there this pastor, pastrix, whatever he, she, it is, um, and see that's the problem, is enslaved to sin. There is a slave handling the Lord's Supper, which when you read the words of institution, it's clear. This is my body given for you for the forgiveness of my of your sins. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, that's the what's apostate about all of that is that there is no gospel there. The gospel is is not even recognized, period, because if it were truly recognized for what it is, then that pastor, he, she, it, whatever, um, would literally fall on his or her face. I don't know what you do in a situation like this. And repent and be forgiven. But instead, the person at the front handling the Lord's Supper, literally performing the liturgy for the Lord's Supper, is somebody who is enslaved to sin and because of that is enslaved to the devil. There in and so I think that the reason why he, she, whatever is is treating God's the Lord's Supper so flippantly is a direct result of the fact that he or she doesn't understand at all what Christ was doing on the cross, doesn't get it at all, and doesn't understand that they are still enslaved to sin. That's the great tragedy of it. And so gay-affirming churches, what they do, rather than confronting people who are enslaved to homosexual lust and homosexual sin, rather than confronting them with their sins and telling them of the free forgiveness of sins in Christ, which is the only means by which they can be set free, leaves them enslaved to their sin and tells them that it's okay. It's not okay. It's 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 anything but okay. Because the biblical texts are clear that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They are still dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to sin, and as a result of it, enslaved to the devil. They are not slaves of righteousness. They're not free in Christ. 
they're anything but. So that I think, Don, you know, I, I, I used your email as you know occasion to kind of go into this, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if you just kind of look on it, a surface treatment, uh, the you know, if uh, let me put it this way, if Jonathan Fisk were to have a Hey Jude, um, Lord's Supper, um, you know, as part of the music there. I would probably take him back behind the shed and have to invoke my pirate skills on his ninja skills, um, basically saying, listen, what you're doing is goofy and, and it's really not helpful and it's it's a trite and wrong way to handle God's word. But the bigger issue with the video with the Hey Jude Beatles mass is not really the Beatles music per se. The bigger issue is it's clear by who is administering the Lord's Supper that they don't have the biblical gospel. And if you don't have the biblical gospel and you're not administering the sacraments in accordance with the gospel, then you don't have a church at all. You have something completely different. And that's really the rub. Moving along. All right, so over the Thanksgiving holiday, did you eat too much? Are you suffering from a digestive disorder? Well, good news. The uh, Patricia King gang, um, they've just posted a video where God the Holy Spirit apparently has given a word to a gentleman by the name of Bart and a word of knowledge that uh, will help you people out there who are suffering from digestive disorders. Yeah, here's Bart to explain. Hi, everyone. I'm just getting a word of knowledge, I believe, actually, for several of you watching, and it's this. God wants to heal digestive disorders. Oh, this is great news. This this is great. So if you're suffering from a digestive disorder, especially that was aggravated during Thanksgiving as a result of all the overeating that you did, God's paying attention to you. This this is a good word here. Uh, I'm not sure what all that consists of, but I believe actually it could be several things. But I'm just getting a picture of of the digestive tract, and I just want to speak that into you right now. No, wait, 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 wait. Listen, you know how much I ate over the holiday? You can't speak anything else into me. I can't fit it in there. It's... There's just no room. That's you, and you're having uh, trouble digesting food or whatever it may be. I want you just to receive this right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, the name above every name, I speak to every body watching, everybody with a digestive disorder, and I command healing to come. Right, You command it. Wow, you have such power and authority over digestive disorders. Who knew? Right now, I say to every digestive organ in the body, function as God created you to function. Now, I want you just to... So is this like one of those colon cleansings? Spiritual colon cleansing, apparently. Receive that. Just lift your heart up in faith and believe it right now. In fact, some of you are actually feeling the pain ease. Some of you are feeling like, in fact, I see someone that's watching. In fact, it's in your right side. You have excruciating pain. Are you dead? Now, listen, if you have excruciating pain in your right side, um, yeah, um, listen, I don't care what Bart just told you you might want to go see a doctor. The, the reason I say that is because back when I was a young lad, you know, I was skinny, um, I, I had severe pain in, in my right side. And wouldn't you know it, I had appendicitis. And so you know what they had to do? They had to take my appendix out. And so if you're experiencing extreme pain that's localized to your right side, yeah, listen, don't trust that you, just because Bart here commanded your digestive thing to go away that it's going to go away. Instead, go see a doctor 
immediately. Just saying, it's, it's probably not turkey or um, you know cranberry related. It's more than likely it could be, you know, something like well, appendicitis. Yeah, and which is really easy to clear up. They just make a little incision, pull that thing right out, snap it off, and. And you'll be healed in a couple of days. No big deal. Yeah, and it's actually leaving as you're watching. Praise God. Just thank Jesus for it and receive it in Jesus' name. Okay. All right, we're going to take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rex here. I know that you've all been hearing about Stephen Furtick's latest book, Greater. Well, I took the time to check it out, and I have to say that I was greatly underwhelmed. For example, in this book he talks about Elisha burning his plows in order to follow Elijah. For some reason, Furtick then asked us to do the same. Uh-huh, right. Furtick only gave you half the story. Where in your book does it tell everyone to sacrifice their oxen and cook their carcasses over your burning plows, Furtick? Nowhere. That's why I'm taking it one step further with my new book, Greater Than or Equal To. You think Furtick's book was bad? Well, my book will do it better, better. I'm not a wimp like Furtick. I do it all. That's right. Not only did I burn my plows like Elisha, but I took my oxen and I sacrificed them with my bare hands. I moved on from that, and I'm now living it up like John the Baptist. I wear a camel's hair jacket with my Bible pants and eat locusts with wild honey. I added some chipotle sauce for flavor. I, I guess it worked. Anyway, got another question for you, Furtick. Ever heard of Hosea? Well, you conveniently skipped the whole part about marrying a prostitute. Well, I did it. On top of that, I'm cooking the locusts tonight for my new wife. Just like Ezekiel. I'm cooking my food over poop. It's so awesome. So watch out, Furtick. Greater than or equal to is way better than your book, you pansy.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny, and the geek in your life will really enjoy them. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. All right, we're back. Warning, just because somebody is reading a biblical passage to you doesn't mean they're actually teaching you what it really says. They may be twisting it. We got a test. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend, absolutely depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And what you do is you partner with us. We are looking for people who would partner with us. If you've grown as a result of listening to Fighting for the Faith, if uh, Fighting for the Faith has helped you sharpen your discernment skills, help you to listen for uh, people who are teaching God's Word as to whether or not they're rightly handling it, helping you understand the biblical gospel and just how good the good news is, well, then you need to partner with us. So here's the idea. You financially partner with us. We keep doing what we're doing, and you get to benefit as well as other people get to benefit. So it's like giving the gift of fighting for the faith. And the way you do that, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. Just $6.95 every month. That's it. Not much. $6.95 every month is a great way to support us, and it uh, helps level out our giving on a month-to-month basis so that we can know and and better budget our finances. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and we're still doing our bake sale. That's right. We're having a bake sale to help us make budget, and uh, we're selling a Christmas bulb. If you would like to get uh, the 
2012 Pirate Christian Radio Christmas bulb, or if you uh, still if you still want to get a bracelet that my mother-in-law beaded, B-E-A-D-E-D, not beaded, but beaded, or you still want to get uh, some of the few remaining T-shirts that we have available, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and pick up your Christmas bulb or your bracelet or your T-shirt today, and it's a great way to support us. Okay, moving along. Got a Robert Morris update. He's been preaching for the last two weeks at Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, at Stephen Furtick's church. That's uh, Pink Floyd's Money from the Dark Side of the Moon. All right, so we got a, uh, we're going to be doing a series of um, segments called Debunking Robert Morris's Principle of Multiplication. Okay, and um, this this topic has been covered before at Fighting for the Faith. We're covering it again because, well, Robert Morris seems to have grown in popularity, and his book is, you know, The the Blessed Life has all of a sudden had new life breathed into it, and uh, he continues to make the round at some of the most prominent seeker-driven churches out there, um, you know, basically pitching his money principles. The problem is, is that they're not based on a right reading or proper handling of God's Word. And so to demonstrate that, today's segment, we're going to be listening to uh, his fir- uh, first se- sermon from Elevation Church, and we're going to be listening to The Power of Multiplication, and this is Robert Morris teaching through Luke chapter 9, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And as you listen to this, the thing that you need to be paying very close attention to is this is that Robert Morris is sticking into this text all kinds of details that are not there. And by the time you become comfortable with him basically retelling the story with all of these details that are not there, by the time you get yourself comfortable with all of that, well, the trap has been set and so when he springs the trap, you're completely unaware of, of wh- when and where it happened. But I'll point it out to you. But this is no way for anybody who calls themselves a pastor or a teacher in God's church, Christ's church, to be handling God's word. This, I mean, seriously, I mean, we, it's as if he's reading a completely different document than 
the biblical gospel. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9, and I'll go ahead and get started. Here is uh, Robert Morris, The Power of Multiplication, and, um, and well, here we go. Luke chapter 9, here's what I want to share with you about. I want to share with you a message in, in your series, Banner Years, uh, that is a principle that when we understand this principle, it causes us, in my opinion, to have a banner year every year. When we join in on what God's doing and understand, and this is a, a principle that I call the principles of multiplication. And it's from Luke chapter 9 with the feeding of the 5,000. Notice this, Luke 9, look at verse 12. It says, when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people for there were about 5,000 men. Uh, you probably noticed this before Pastor Stevens probably shared this with you. Okay, now notice something. He just read verse 12 and 13, okay? He just read two verses. That's what, and so far so good. This is like the heresy two-step though, because he lays down the biblical text and no sooner does he lay it down than he's going to begin to back off of it. In this particular case, what he's going to be doing is filling this text up with artificial and foreign concepts. You think of it this way, okay? Yeah, I understand that you know the the, the hostess is you know going bankrupt, and that uh, the the fate of the of the of the Twinkie franchise is now hanging in the balance. Okay, but think of it this way. Okay, we, we're all familiar with Twinkies, right? You've seen a Twinkie before. I mean, yes, they're 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 tasty, they're sweet. But you know, right in the middle of that sponge cake, in the center of the Twinkie, you've got this this cream filling. Okay, and we all love Twinkies in part because of that. Okay. But see, here's the deal, okay? Think of it this way, is that what Robert Morris has done here is he's laid down the biblical text. Think of that as the healthy portion of this meal. But he's decided to, while you're not looking, inject into the middle of this healthy food that you've just you know, tasted an, an artificial, toxic, poisonous, um, substance that is not actually part of this biblical text. He's going to basically inflate the story with artificial teaching, with stuff that isn't there. De- and he's going to deliver it in such a way that's so funny, and you know that nobody is suspecting that what they're being fed is literally toxic waste. Okay, so you got to think of it that way. You know, we got healthy food that he's just put down, and now he's going to literally take a syringe. Stick it right in the heart of that thing and fill it with green, literally radioactive, toxic teaching. That stuff, details that are just not in this text. And all of this is to get you comfortable with it so that he can spring a trap on you. And when he, once he springs the trap, you're not going to detect it unless you've been paying attention all along. But watch what he does here. So he's read two verses. And so now we're gonna, he's going to start engaging in some, ah, shucks, Texas kind of storytelling. In Jewish culture at that time, the way they counted crowds is they counted men. They were counting families. So when it says there were 5,000 men, it means there were 5,000 families. And according to the culture of that time, and you think about how many children each family would have easily, they could have had 15 or 20 or maybe even 25,000 people there that day. 
Matthew says it this way, Matthew 14, 21. Those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Many theologians believe this is the largest crowd Jesus ever spoke with. So it's a huge crowd. So when we say the feeding of the 5,000, just don't, don't let that be a misnomer for you to think it was 5,000 people. It was 5,000 families. True. That he fed. Now, let's keep going. Verse 14. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. And then he took the five loaves of the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. Now, I'm kind of a numbers guy. Num- okay, now, that's, see, there, that's the whole story. There it is. Without any artificial flavors, fillers, toxic waste, Bible twisting, there it is. Wow. I mean, you think, what a Bible teacher. And watch what's coming. Numbers jump out at me. And when I saw that 12 baskets were left over, I remember thinking, now, why would there be 12 baskets left over? And then it, it dawned on me. I think that Jesus wanted each disciple to have a doggy bag. I mean, it's just, it's just my personal opinion. Now, that's the first thing. He says that's his personal opinion. It's a little laugh line, right? Okay. But see, now he's going to start giving us a litany of his personal opinions, stuff that isn't in the text. This is not what pastors are supposed to do, by the way. Okay. But here's what I like to do with the Bible. I like to put myself in the story. There's a problem. So he's now going to put himself in. So here we go. We It sounds so pious, doesn't it? But see, the thing is, is neither you nor me nor Robert Morris were there. So how exactly do you put yourself into the story? And watch what he's doing. Since he's going to put himself into the story, he's going to just start making up all kinds of details that aren't in the story. But I mean, after all, he can do that because he just inserts himself into the story. And by doing so, he's able to see all of the stuff that isn't there that, that, the God, that Luke didn't write down, but he's able to figure out himself. Watch what he does. I don't know if you've ever done this, but it's a blast. I like to, to imagine how would I have responded had I been there that day? Imagine here. Okay, so now we're going to slip into the realm of imagination. imagination. Yeah, no pastor is supposed to be preaching from his imagination. This is a dangerous place to be preaching from. And so that's what I want us to do today. I want you to just imagine, use your holy imagination. I want you to imagine that you're one of the disciples. You are on what we would call the Messiah uh, search committee. Uh, You've got a great candidate. You have a guy who's healing the sick and raising the dead and and walking on water, which is like a bonus messianic prophecy, you know. And so you've got this great guy and he's teaching the word and he's a really good teacher. And so you decide to have a high attendance weekend and you do a, a, a mass email and you tweet about it. And you, the biggest crowd that you've ever had shows up and you have great worship like we did today at all the locations. And then the guest speaker gets up to speak and, uh, you know, 1230, he's still going one o'clock still going two o'clock. I mean, you've already missed the first game. (laughs) Three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock. I'm not exaggerating. Look, Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, when the day began to wear away. You know what that means in the Greek? In the Greek, that means when the day began to wear away. 
it's getting late. And so here's what I think personally. I think the disciples, they just formed a little committee over here. And they said, like, man, what are we going to do? I mean, this guy's just going all day. I mean, he's good, but nobody's just good. I mean, what? Get notice that this part, where does it come from? It comes from Robert Morris's. Not from the biblical text. It's coming from his imagination. This is how you inject artificial substances into the biblical teaching at this point. What are we going to do? And, and I'll tell you what, if, if I don't get something to eat soon, I'm going to die. I, I'm going to die right here. And I think one of them said, that's it. And he said, well, what's it? Let's tell Jesus that the people are getting hungry. He seems to care a lot about the people. And notice everyone's laughing here, but what they don't realize is just how much danger they really are in. And the reason I say that is because Robert Morris can tell stories. He's got good skills when it comes to delivering a speech or a masleration. But what he's doing here is not what Christian pastors do. Christian pastors don't preach from their imagination. And as funny as these details are and as, you know, as, as ah shucks the story is, there's something really wrong here. Because he's getting them used to this idea that we don't have to pay attention to what the text says. We can just recast the story and retell the story, not from the details and the grammar given in the biblical text, but we can do that using our dangerous, dangerous. Let's continue. He doesn't seem to care much about us, but he seems to care a lot about the people. And so now let's imagine that you get elected a spokesperson, okay? So see this in your mind. Jesus is up there speaking. He had a podium very similar to that one. A lot of people, you know, and, and you walk up to Jesus while he's speaking. This is the inference from Scripture, okay, that they interrupted him while he's speaking, okay? So see this. Jesus is right there. And so you, you say, um, Lord, Lord, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Um, boy, this has been good today. I tell you, this has really been good. Um, this, uh, this series of messages that you're bringing all in one day. Uh, but um, uh, we, we feel like, Lord, that... Notice by using his imagination now, we're making Jesus kind of look stupid. Yeah, I mean, who preaches all day long while people are hungry? Come on, get a clue, Jesus. That um, the the people are getting hungry. Uh, now now we could go all night. I tell you, it's been that good, boy. Uh, but um, we we feel like that the the people are getting hungry, and and it's it's getting late, and and the so in your um well um you have the disciples basically lying to Jesus. Oh yeah, we could go all night. This is great stuff, Jesus. We could go on. They're they're basically lying and condescending. Got it. Okay. The restaurants are about to close. And um, so we, we uh, voted and uh, we, we feel like that um, you ought to just wrap it up. <laughs> and Jesus says, you're, you're concerned about the, the people. Yes, Lord, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. And then, look, he says something. Maybe you've never seen this. Verse 13. So he said to them, then you give them something to eat. Excuse me. Yeah, you and your little group over there, you're concerned about the people. Why don't y'all give them something to eat? 
It didn't go like you planned, did it? <laughs> and now you've got to report back to the committee. That's the hard part. So you go back over, you know, and <clears throat> they say, well, did you tell them the people are hungry? I did. I told them exactly. I said those exact words. I said the people are hungry. Well, is he going to dismiss the service? <laughs> well, what did he say? He said for us to give him something to eat. <laughs> what? What did he say? He said for us to give him something to eat. What? There's 20,000 people here. Oh, man. And then there's some little kid that snuck back into town during one of these messages. And he's walking by with a long John Silver sack. And so they grabbed the sack, you know, and they opened it up. He got the two-piece meal with extra rolls. And, of course, Peter probably just kind of, and they said, stop it, Peter, stop it. That's all we have. That's all we have. And one of them said, that's it. And they said, what's it? Let's tell Jesus this is all we have. And he'll dismiss the service. Now, I want you to think just for a moment. If you had never heard this Bible story and you had been there and that was all you had, don't you think he would dismiss the service? Wouldn't you think that also? Sure. Makes sense. So, again, you're the spokesperson. Jesus is up there speaking. So, at this point, I mean, you're, you're, you're the victim, and you've been made very comfortable now with all of these extra-biblical details that are not in the text. You won't find them in Luke. You won't find them in Matthew's account. You won't find them in Mark's account. This, By the way, this story occurs in all three of those Gospels. Okay? You won't find it in, in, in any of these details there. But now you've become, because he's used humor to do this, you've become very comfortable with all of this extra-biblical imaginative stuff. And so it makes it very easy now for Robert Morris to introduce you to stuff that is a complete twisting and mangling of this text. And you won't detect it at all because how are you supposed to detect it with all of the, seriously, with just the sheer quantity of imaginative information that's being inserted into this story. Uh, Lord, excuse me. Just one more, just one thing, Lord. Excuse me. Um, you know, we were talking about, I was telling you how good this series is. And um, um, and you, you said for, you know, us to, you know, um, uh, get the people something to eat. And um, uh, we've been working on that. And um, uh, But, Lord, all we have, this is all we have. We, we have uh, two fish. And we have um, almost five rolls. Peter ate some more. Um, so, um, but um, and so we're thinking, since that's all we have, that's all we have. And again, it's late. Uh, we're thinking that you ought to just, you know, um, go with the original plan and uh, just wrap it up. And the Lord said, "Okay, you have two fish and." Almost, almost five rolls. I know how Peter is. Um, that's all you have, right? Yes, that's, that's all we have. Yep, yep, that'd be great. Have them sit down in groups of 50. Excuse me. Uh, we don't have a lot of these snack packs, Lord. Uh, there, there was a kid walking. Peter took it from him. I didn't take it from him, Lord. Yeah, that'd be great. Have them sit down in groups of 50. Now, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about getting thousands of people to sit down in groups of 50. I, I, I don't know about you, but, but have you ever worked with people? <laughs> I mean, people are hard to work with, aren't they? So, you know, you get them all sat down. And then I think during this process, I think one of the disciples thought, 
hey, I think I know what's going to happen. And I'll bet he told Notice, again, he says, I think one of the disciples thought. Well, how did you think that thought? That There's no text that says that. It's not revealed in God's Word. Where are you getting this? Oh, yeah, I know, from his... Yeah, you don't want to trust somebody who's preaching from their imagination. We continue, though. The other guys, hey, guys, I, th- I think we're okay. Uh, do you remember that story in the Bible where Elisha fed 100 men with 12 loaves of bread? Well, we have someone greater than Elisha here. I- I'll bet you that when he prays over it, it's going to just multiply right in front of our eyes. And by the way, that's what a lot of people think happened. But that's actually not what happened. Okay, now, point this out here. This is, see, this is so sneaky, so sneaky. Where did he get this information about where the disciple thought that got, that this was going to result in these loaves just multiplying in front of them? Not from the biblical text. It's not what the biblical text says at all. He told you. He said he thought one of them thunk this. So, in other words, so he set up the the dichotomy. Okay, well, well, this guy thunk this, but he doesn't know that he actually thunk it. But he got it from his imagination. And then turns around and says, but he got it wrong. Huh. But see, nowhere in Luke chapter 9 does it say that the disciple thought that this was going to happen. So now, let's just put it this way. You've been set up. You are literally inside of the trap. Okay? He's lured you in, and he's going to spring it. And he's lured you in by making it look like he's teaching God's word, but he's not. He's teaching what's in his imagination. Over and again, my opinion, I think, I thought, all of this is his imagination. And now we've even got some poor guy who who's thinking wrongly about what's going to happen so that, well, don't worry. Even though he thought wrong, Robert Morris is going to clear it up and he's going to tell us the truth. But he hasn't told us the truth at all. We continue. If, if you look at verse 16, just part of it, it says, He blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. He blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So here's what might have happened. This just, again, I'm using my holy imagination. Uh-huh. He's using his what? In other words... This isn't what the biblical text says. This is just what he imagines went down. Peter probably, you know, because he was so bold, he probably said, here, here, give me. And he took a piece of bread and he ran over and he said, here, pray over mine first, Lord, here, pray over mine, pray over mine. Watch, watch, watch what happens when he prays over. Peter didn't do that. None of the texts say it. And Jesus takes this piece of bread, lifts it up to heaven and says, Father, bless it. And then he breaks it and gives half of it back to Peter. Uh, Are you through praying? Okay. Where in the text does this appear? It doesn't. This is Robert Morris's imagination that he's preaching, not the biblical text. This account of Peter is not in there at all. Yes, Peter, it's blessed. 
Now go give it away. That dialogue doesn't occur in any of the gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000. You will pray some more. (laughs) That response appears nowhere in any of the accounts of the feeding of the 5,000. No, Peter, and you need to catch this. It's blessed. That reiteration by Jesus nowhere occurs in any of the accounts in the Gospels regarding the feeding of the 5,000. It's blessed. Now you give it, and you watch what happens. And nowhere does Jesus say, now you give it, and watch what happens. It occurs in not one account of the feeding of the 5,000. This account literally only exists in Robert Morris's... We continue. But personally, I think Peter walked up to the first person and said something like this. Now, catch what he said. Personally, I think. Wow, where is he getting this from? Oh, yeah. We continue. Take just a little piece. (laughs) What, What would you have said? Like a little piece, little piece, little piece. I said a little piece, you pig. What? what, what? Take a little piece. He gets down to the end of the row. There is a crumb left. Okay, where in the biblical text does it say that people were taking little pieces and then there was only a crumb left? It doesn't say it in any of these texts at all. In his hand. Sweat pouring down his face. No account of sweat pouring down Peter's face at all. And right before the guy reaches to take it, Peter looks down and this little crumb starts growing. Nowhere in any account of the feeding of the 5,000 does it say that the crumb grew. In his hands. And Peter says, you can have some more. (laughs) You have to catch this. The miracle did not happen in the master's hands. It happened in the disciples' hands. Wrong. That's absolutely, patently false and a lie. And I'll prove it to you from the biblical text. Now, there is a simple principle in hermeneutics, and here's the idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, And so the idea is this, is that if you're not sure how to rightly handle a particular biblical text, look at how the same concepts, teaching, or doctrine is handled in other biblical texts that deal with that same topic. Okay, Clear passages then govern unclear. Let me read again the story here for you in Luke chapter 9. We'll pay attention then to the details, but I'm going to use a cross-reference to disprove what he's saying. Because number one, I've already pointed out, there is no account of the miracle growing loaf at all, or of Peter sweating, or of Peter saying, take only a little bit, or of the miracle occurring in the disciples' hands. It doesn't say that in the biblical text at all. In fact, the biblical text make it clear in whose hands the miracle did take place, and it was not in the disciples' hands. Let me read again, okay? 
Luke chapter 9, verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he, that's Jesus, looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Let me read it again. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Who broke the bread? Jesus did. Where did the miracle take place? The miracle took place with Jesus breaking each of the loaves. By breaking them, he was the one performing the miracle. The miracle was happening in his hands. And here's verse 17. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now notice, no mention of any multiplication taking place in the hands of the disciples. No mention of growing loaves or anything like that. Instead, the natural reading of the text is this. The, where the multiplication took place was in Jesus' breaking, repeated breaking of the bread itself. And this, by the way, using that principle that I told you about, Scripture interprets Scripture, is where we now know for sure that this did not take place in the hands of the disciples. Let me give you a cross-reference. Mark chapter 8, verse 14. I'll read you the story. Here's what, in, here's what it says. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, okay? And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. They were getting in the boat, and they only had one loaf with them. And, and Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the, and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Did you catch it? Jesus here in Mark chapter 8 verse 19 is referencing the feeding of the 5,000. And in Jesus' telling of the story, who, in whose hands did the miracle take place? According to Jesus, the miracle took place in his own hands. Listen again. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Scripture interprets Scripture. So here's the idea. Mark chapter 8, verse, verse 19. Jesus makes it clear that the miracle took place in his hands when he broke the five 
loaves, and he makes a point of pointing out that the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. Nowhere in any account of the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000 does it say anything about loaves growing in the hands of the disciples. This teaching comes directly out of Robert Morris's But when we apply simple biblical hermeneutics, scripture, interpreting scripture, paying attention to the details as they are recorded and not using our, then we're able to understand where the miracle took place. The miracle took place in the hands of Jesus as he broke the loaves. They picked up broken pieces. The multiplication took place in the master's hands not in the disciples' hands. What Robert Morris is saying here is a flat-out lie. But he needs this story to go this way so that it, because this becomes the foundation for the rest of his heretical teaching regarding his so-called principle of multiplication. Let me back it up just a little bit so that you can hear again what he, the crime that he's committed here. That's the trap. It's been set. You You were in it. And then he sprung it. Right there, when he said that the miracle took place in the disciples' hands. you By that time, you have become so comfortable with all of this extra detail of the story that is not recorded there that you were seeing it magically, but it's not there in the text when you go back to re-examine. Listen again. Peter looks down, and this little crumb starts growing in his hands. And Peter says, you can have some more. <laughs> you have to catch this. The miracle did not happen in the master's hands. That is a lie. It happened in the disciples' hands. Flat out lie. Okay, so there are two principles of multiplication from this story, okay? I want to give them to you. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write these down, all right? If you're not taking notes, write these down, okay? Here's number one. It has to be blessed before it can multiply. (laughs) See, this becomes the principle. At this point, if you've fallen for all of this, you are already on the hook, and there ain't no way you're going to get out of it. You have literally had this wolf sink his teeth into you. Good luck escaping. It has to be. It must be. You could say it either way. It has to be blessed before it can multiply. Now, just think with me for a moment. Okay, now I'm going to just stop right there. But see, here's the deal. This is not what Scripture says. Everything else that he builds off of this is built off of a false foundation. This is built off of, well, a Twinkie that has toxic waste as its filling. You, you get what I'm saying here? That's the idea. What he said is absolutely patently false. And the way he was able to do it was basically lull his listeners into a false sense of security that they were being fed God's word when all the time he made it very clear he was not preaching God's word. He was preaching what was in his imagination. And that's where the thing goes off the rails to the point where it makes it possible for him to literally insert details that are not there and smuggle, smuggle, I mean, literally smuggle the glory that is due Jesus for the miracle that he performed performed and give it then to the disciples. Okay, that's some serious Bible twisting there. And that's section one now, or part one, of a series of uh, 
uh, sections that we're going to do in examining Robert Morris's te- uh, teaching regarding the principle of multiplication. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. When we get back, we're going to be listening to a uh, miserable handling of the story of Gideon from up in Canada. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices right down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time going to canada today And the reason I picked this sermon, well, because they made it into the Museum of Idolatry over the holiday weekend. And you're going to find out why here in a minute. All right, here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, Masloration <laughs> comes to us via Malvern Christian Assembly in Toronto, Ontario. Ontario, I'm sorry.
The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's Masleration comes to us via Malvern Christian Assembly in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, the person presiding is a Martext named Jamie McMillan. Name of the Masleration is entitled The Story of Gideon. Pay close attention to how he mishandles this text. Um, this is a form of narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as narcissism, that you're going to hear. He makes the same mistake that Stephen Furtick makes. He makes the same mistake that, well, um, Troy Gramling made last year in his worst Christmas sermon ever preached in the history of the Christian church that we reviewed last year. It's the same thing. And here's the idea. You read yourself into these stories. And so... Uh, well, Gideon went through a phase when he was down in the dumps and he was hiding in in cisterns uh, and and hiding from people. So you got to go through that phase too. And then the next phase is the uh, is the uh, get the angel of the Lord to visit you phase and things like that. You'll get what I'm saying as we get into the sermon. There's no way to handle the biblical text. These texts aren't about you; they're actually about Jesus. So with that in mind, let's kill the uh, music here. And without any further ado, here is the story of Gideon from Malvern Christian Assembly in uh, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Martex Jamie McMillan presiding. Here we go. Simply a book that deals with all of the people who led Israel out of bondage, out of slavery, out of oppression after Joshua had defeated Israel's enemies and established the tribes of Israel in the promised land, he died. And God would occasionally raise up men and women. They were called judges, and they would lead segments of Israelites against their local enemies. God was gracious, and he would provide them with the necessary leadership to get them back on track. But even then, the leaders were usually less than they should have been. There were cycles, you see. The period of the Judges is known as one of Israel's lowest times in history. The book records seven cycles over 300 years of the people and how they would disobey God. This is how the cycle would go. It would begin with disobedience, which would result in some kind of bondage, which would result in some kind of misery. And then God would raise up one of these judges, and he would call the people back to him, and this resulted in repentance, deliverance, rest, and then revival. And then it would happen all over again. Sort of. By the way, that's not a terribly bad uh, synopsis of kind of the flow of things in the book of Judges. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it revival, but okay, sure. Yeah, not bad. Okay. Israel, they get into the promised land, and no sooner do they get there than they start committing adultery uh, religiously, which is known as idolatry. And um, and they start worshiping other gods. They're entrapped and ensnared by the people living there. God punishes them by selling them into slavery, so to speak, um, under uh, you know their enemies, and then raises up a judge to redeem them. Yeah, that, that's a pretty decent uh, description of it. <clears throat> yeah, I fear that this might be the uh, the icing on the cake, though, and that the rest of the cake may not be worth eating. But let's continue. You see. In their years of peace and prosperity, the people began to wander, wander from God's will. They began to forget about how God set them free very quickly. All of a sudden, when it's all good, they would begin to forget about God. 
and then would true would follow moral decline and then military oppression from the outside. It's in this kind of picture that the story of Gideon takes place. See, Gideon was one of these local judges raised up by God to deliver a group of localized Israelites from a group of people called the Midianites. Yeah. The Midianites were a nomadic people who would wait until the people of Israel had finished planting their crops and then they would sweep in and they would steal their crops, their herds, they would destroy anything that they saw and they would take it all with them. Well, this went on for seven years. And it was getting a little bit old. Every time you would try and plant your crops or raise up your herds, the Midianites would come in and steal what they had. So the people cried out to God and they said, Lord, we need your help. You need to deliver us. And he called someone to lead his people. Firstly, out of military oppression. And then secondly, out of moral oppression. And that person, his name was Gideon. So with all these things in mind, now we're going to get to the story. Now... I like to be creative when I can. Not good. And I wanted to create a way that you could remember this word on Gideon. Get ready to don your tinfoil pyramid hats. You will need them now. So I looked for a video that worked. And I looked and I looked and I looked. And there was nothing that I could find that would fit this sermon And so I looked for a poem, the artistic type of guy that I am. I looked for some kind of a poem or something that would work. And and, and I was driving home uh, from Malvern one day, and I was really frustrated because I I haven't found a creative way yet to connect with people so that they would remember this word on Gideon. And all of a sudden, a song came on the radio. And I thought to myself, I thought, now this might be a great way for people to remember the story of Gideon. No, it, it is not. I, I'm speaking from experience. Now, I want you to realize this morning that you can have victory over the enemy. And if you believe that, say amen. amen. Okay. You can have victory over the enemy. Not the theme of the story of Gideon. Um, we've got a problem here already. And you may feel like you can't beat him. You may feel that the enemy is robbing you of everything, your joy, your health, your finances. You might even be attacking your family. And this morning, I want you to see through the story of Gideon that you can indeed be victorious. Oh, no. But before I get into the sermon, I thought I would illustrate my sermon in a different way to connect with you this morning. So I'm going to ask my assistants to come and help me. And we're going to show you how to whoop the devil Gideon style. Yep, you heard that right. Grab your barf bags, um, tinfoil pyramid hats, any of the devices that you use to protect you from spiritual radiation. Because this thing is emanating it like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, he's doing that during the sermon. Just want to make that clear. Okay. 
Sounds like he got a standing O. He should have been thrown out of the church at that point. (laughs) Yeah, guys like that, I want to whoop them pirate style. I really enjoyed working here. It was wonderful. (laughs) You're never going to forget that. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Help us all. So this morning, we are going to learn how to whoop the enemy, Gideon style. See, already we've got a problem, because that's not what this text is about at all. We all have a desire for victory in our lives. Some of you have been living and hiding from the enemy for a long time. Notice he's now allegorizing the text. You've been... Hiding from the enemy for a long time, just like Gideon. Oh, no. You think you can't be a conqueror. You feel like the enemy has won. When you think of a conqueror, you're usually inclined to think of somebody who's strong, who's got great strength and great wisdom, personal charisma, beauty. I don't normally think in these categories, period. Beauty, enormous wealth, and Gideon possessed absolutely none of these qualities. He started out as a bitter, weak farmer, but he was transformed into a warrior in the most unlikely fashion. He experienced a personal revival. What I want you to do is turn to your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Now, the story is long. It spans over three chapters, so we're not going to read it word for word this morning just for the sake of time. But believe it or not, there was a point to that dance. Because every single one of those dances I want you to remember because they have to do with what we're talking about this morning. So first of all, we're going to look at how Gideon put his own life in order. And this is the part I like to call Thresh the Wheat. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is as asinine as uh, the greater book by Stephen Furtick where he says you need to burn your plows. Yeah, you, again... It's real simple. This is real simple. This is no way to read the biblical text. There's no threshing the wheat thing that you need to do in your life. You don't need to burn your plows. You don't have to marry a prostitute. You don't have to be thrown into a cistern. The lives of the prophets were their own lives. These are not patterns that you follow to somehow apply to your life so that you can experience victory. This is a complete botched handling of the biblical text. And so... We're going to look at this because we meet Gideon in a very unlikely place. In Judges 6.11, it pretty much says it all. It says, The Lord's angelic messenger came down and sat under the oak tree in Orpha, owned by Joash the Abrazite. He arrived while Joash's son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press so he could hide it from the Midianites. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. It's not exactly a picture of strength and courage here. You see, he's hiding down in the wine press, threshing the wheat. Normally, 
the, where you would thresh your wheat is on top of a hill in an open flat place and you would thresh that wheat and the wind would come along and it would blow away the chaff. That's the way that you used to thresh the wheat. But instead we see Gideon at the bottom of the hill under a tree threshing the wheat in a wine press. Desperately trying to save the little bit of food that he had hidden from the Midianites. It's not a picture of courage, but rather it's a picture of a defeated man, a discouraged man, a man filled with doubts and fears. Not only was he in the wine press physically, he was in the wine press spiritually and emotionally. Gideon appears to be a timid, bitter man. So he was spiritually in the wine press. Really? Okay. And when he was challenged to deliver Israel by the angel of the Lord, he said, pardon me. This is what I like to call the who wah me huh phase. <laughs> the who wah me phase? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure biblical scholars have, have you know, been unified from the beginning of the church on identifying the who wah me phase of the Gideon story. You, you get what's going on here? This is narcissistic eisegesis, a.k.a. narcissus. You think the Bible's about you. It's not. This story is not about you at all. Maybe you've been there. He says, pardon me, but he says, if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Where are all his miraculous deeds that our ancestors told us about? They said, did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Doesn't sound really much like a hero at this point. You see, two things contributed to his cowardice, bitterness and timidity. Wow, Whew. that's some profound insight. That's like no, no, no insight at all. We continue. Gideon was set up to live a life of frustration. He was bitter with God for not coming through for him. In addition to the bitterness that Gideon felt, so that's why he's in the wine press because he's bitter. So these are these are bitter. These are sour grapes, is what you're saying. This is the sour grapes phase of the Gideon story. You see what's going wrong here? Let's read the story um, all on our own without this guy's help so we can find out what's really going on in this text. Because it's apparent that um, the the gentleman delivering this masleration, uh, Jamie McMillan, he's a Martext, and so he's not he doesn't know what he's doing. Here it is. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. What happened? Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They committed idolatry. They did not. They did not keep their end of the Mosaic Covenant. And that's the thing. The Mosaic Covenant, was <laughs> you got to keep that thing. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So what did God do? He delivered in the hand of Midian for seven years. Years, The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey." treacherous times. The consequences of their rebellion against God were severe, right? 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. That's how the story begins. Why are they in such misery? Because they did was evil in the sight of the Lord. The consequences, they were sold to Midian, you know, almost like slavery. Think of it that way. Verse 7, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on the account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. Why is he having to say that? Because they're worshiping false gods and idols, right? And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is all about idolatry and its consequences. So now the angel of the Lord, this would be Jesus, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abarezerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The reason he's hiding in there, because if the Midianites get this, they've got no food. And if they got no food, they're going to starve. This has nothing to do with the fact that Gideon was... He was bitter. Oh, he was spiritually bitter and he was spiritually in the wine press. No, this is all practical stuff here. Okay? He's hiding, doing his business in this wine press because if the Midianites see him, they're going to come, maybe kill him, if not kill him, beat him up severely, and then take his food, and then he and his family have nothing. Okay? <clears throat> so the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. He asked a good question. And the answer was already given by that prophet, right? Because of their idolatry. So the Lord, this is this is this is who's talking to him. So Yahweh turned to Gideon and said, "Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you?" Okay, this is a similar account, almost a parallel account to the calling of Moses. Okay, Gideon's story is not nearly as long as and involved. Similar commissioning, though. Okay. So who's going to do this? Who's going to deliver them? Well, God, the Lord is going to deliver Israel from the hand of Midian by means of Gideon. That's how it's going to happen. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the land from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, "Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house." And the Lord said to him, "But." I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, Well, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign 
that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord then vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Yahweh, God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh, and he called it Yahweh is peace. To this day, it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abarizarites. <clears throat> Yahweh is peace. So here the Lord comes to deliver and redeem his people, and he comes and we learn that Yahweh, the Lord, is peace. Right? Who was it that he was meeting with? Jesus. Who was commissioning Gideon? Jesus was. Who did G Gideon see face to face? God, because Jesus is God in human flesh, right? In this particular case, probably a pre-incarnate uh, version of Jesus, but nonetheless, he's having a conversation with the Son of God himself. And he has, and he's afraid that he's going to die because no one can see the face of the Lord and, and live. And yet, Jesus comforts him and says, Peace. And so he names that place, the Lord is peace. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So... Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son so that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, then let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day Gideon was called Jerob Baal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Aborizerites were called out to follow him. 
and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the ground only, and all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Chapter 7 Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the the valley. By the way, you notice how kind and patient the Lord is with Gideon? He doesn't want to act audaciously. He doesn't want to act presumptuously. He wants to make sure that he's acting on a true and real word from the Lord and that he's not deceived. And yet he has this sure and certain word, direct revelation from God. Okay. So the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now notice, okay, this probably reveals the reason why the Lord picked Gideon because he was the least from the least from the least. You know, his clan was the least from the smallest clan. And so the idea here is that the Lord tips his hands. And that is, is that it is the Lord who's going to get, who's going to get the glory and the credit for freeing Israel from Midian, not Israel. They are not going to be able to say, Hey, we did this on our own steam. So the Lord is going to set this up so that the, he, he is the only one who's going to get credit for it, okay? Not Israel. They, they can't say we freed ourselves. That They know that they were then freed by God through Gideon, okay? So my so the people will are too many uh, for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So then... 22,000 of the people returned, and only 10,000 remained. And then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by, <laughs> set by himself. Uh, likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So here's the idea. Okay, y'all seen that movie 300? Okay. You know, where the 300 Spartans, are, they, they're able to hold off the entire Persian army, right? Well, um, you remember what they looked like? I mean, these guys all look like they were bodybuilders in the uh, in the movie version. I mean, it's, 
It's ridiculous. But anyway, <clears throat> so you, you have all these guys who are svelte and all this kind of stuff. Okay, think of Gideon's army as like the opposite of that. Okay, whereas the 300 Spartans, were they were warriors from the time that they were you know, born, and they were born and raised Spartans. They were fighting men from the time that they were tykes, you know, that kind of thing, right? Here, rather than, you know, 300 svelte, really ripped, muscular warriors, we have 300 feral um, redneck Israelites who literally drink water like a dog, lapping it up with their tongue. You get the picture here? And the reason for this is so that when the battle's all done, as the Lord has said, that way Israel can't say we saved ourselves, right? So this is your army, 300 mighty feral men who (laughs) drink like dogs. So the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go Every man to his home. So the people took their provisions in their hands and their trumpets and sent out all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. He has a direct and sure and certain promise from the Lord for deliverance. By the way, each and every one of us does too. Not deliverance from the Midianites, but deliverance from sin, death, and the devil. Because the sure and certain word and the promise that we all are hanging on to is this promise. That Jesus Christ has died for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. That we are to trust that when we face God on the judgment day, that we will not be sent away. To the, to the fires of hell like we deserve, but that we have received a full and complete pardon by Christ's shed blood on the cross. God has purchased us with his own blood. That's our sure and certain promise. Here, Gideon has a sure and certain promise, okay? Jesus says to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, Go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. Notice what he says. Okay, listen, I'm giving it to you, but if you're afraid, don't worry. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to be angry with that. I've even made a provision for that, right? Go down with your servant Purah, okay? And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servants, to the outpost of the armed men, who are in the camp, and the Midianites, and the Amalekites, and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it, and it fell, and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat." his comrade answered, This is no, no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And the reason he's hearing that is because Gideon was afraid. And the Lord said, Don't worry. If you're afraid, just go and listen. And after you hear, you will know that the word I've spoken to you is true. Right? So as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, 
For the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, empty jars and torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpet also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had set the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their hand, left hands the torches and in the right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, and they cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord sent every man's sword against his comrade and against all of the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerah, and as, and as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and all of Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Great story, right? <clears throat> And in a very similar way, your great God and King, Jesus Christ, has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And he did it by dying on the cross for your sins and coming back from the grave. You have a sure and certain word from God that your enemies, who have held you in bondage, who've kept you in fear, who speak into your life eternal death and destruction, that Christ has conquered them with his mighty word and by his mighty deeds. He was there giving the sure and certain word to Gideon, and he's given the sure and certain word to us through his apostles of our forgiveness and right standing and how he has redeemed us and saved us from those who would enslave us. That story points us to Jesus' story. You get it? Now, that's just a summary You've, you've now, you now know the story. Let's find out what happens with <clears throat> Jamie McMillan, who is a Martext, and see how he <clears throat> mishandles the story. Already he's not doing very well at all. He had nothing, he had no hope that things would improve. He felt he had nothing to offer to help. He felt like he didn't have the skills or the power to turn things around. When, when the angel told him, you're the man to do this, to lead Israel, he started giving them the excuses. He said, my clan is the weakest. And I'm the youngest in my family. You have the wrong guy. I'm just hiding out here in the wine press, threshing some, some wheat. You need a warrior to do this. Maybe you feel like that sometimes. Are you hiding in the wine press, threshing wheat, afraid to go public with your faith. God has no called you to do a task and you're too afraid to do it. No. You say, God, you've got the wrong guy. Nope. Or maybe you're saying, God, where were you when this happened and when that happened? Nope. And now you want me to do something? Yeah, no, sorry. I can't relate at all. That's exactly how Gideon responded. He was bitter, disappointed. Where does it say in the text that he was bitter? I don't recall that. 
We can all give reasons why we can't do it. God, you've got the wrong person. But you need to have what I like to call a moment with God. Oh, is that what you call it? Okay, you call it a moment with God. Kind of like the wine press phase and the uh, hoo-ha, hoo-ha, me phase. Yeah, okay. Maybe you'll notice this morning that Gideon didn't go find God, but God came to Gideon in the wine press. And this morning you're here and you're in the wine press in your own life. Things aren't going the way you want them to go. Not at all. Maybe your children, your family aren't serving the Lord. Maybe the, maybe the bills aren't paid. Maybe your body is afflicted with sickness. You feel like you're at the literal bottom of the barrel this morning. I want to t- That would be the wine press barrel. I'll tell you that Jesus is with you in the wine press. Well, that's no good because that means he's hiding. And he's afraid of the Midianites too. Oh, it's easy to find Jesus when you're in a moment of victory. But I want you to know that the Lord is there with you today in the midst of your struggle. He is there just like he was there with Gideon. And Gideon had a moment with God. This is one of my favorite points in this story. When the, the angel of the Lord meets Gideon as he's bitter, timid, and threshing wheat in the wine press, this is what he calls Gideon. This is how he addresses him. He says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon, from the outside eyes, does not look like a mighty hero. He does not look like a mighty hero. He doesn't think he's a mighty hero, but God saw him differently. And this morning I want you to know that God sees you differently than you see yourself. You see, we don't think we can have... Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Really? Yeah, you're missing the whole point have victory. We don't think that God's got the right person. We think that that's reserved for somebody else who's more beautiful, stronger, better put together. Maybe they're a better Christian. They have better morals than us. But I want you to know that right now God sits beside you and he says, mighty warrior. No, he doesn't. That's ridiculous and narcissistic to boot. You can have victory this morning. Why? Because the Lord is with you. God called him a hero when he was still a zero. I think there's a scripture that says, while you were still sinners, Christ died. Yes, that's true. That, in fact, I think that might even qualify as a gospel nugget, which, by the way, is something we don't have happen a lot here at Fighting for the Faith anymore. Hearing a pastor accidentally preaching the gospel... So there it was. That was the gospel nugget. We continue. The second picture this morning was chopping down that Asherah pole, chopping down the idols in your life. This is when Gideon puts his house in order. Finally, he has an experience with God. If you read on in the scripture, you would see he has an experience with God. He does a little test for God. He says, God, if this meat, this sacrifice that I give you is consumed on this rock, then I will know that I'm really speaking with God. God does that, and then all of a sudden he realizes he meets with God. When he realizes that it truly is the Lord that is with him, his reaction is actually a little, he's a little bit scared. He thinks he's going to die because he has seen the Lord, and the Lord has grace on him, and he says, no. He says, no, you're not going to die. I've called you for such a time as this. 
And so now he has had this experience with God. It goes from a religious experience where he thinks the rules are going to kill him because he wasn't good enough into a relationship. Oh, good gravy. More eisegesis. Let's continue. Where all of a sudden he realizes that the Lord is with him. And that's when we get to this second point where God calls him to do something. See, it's one thing to meet with God secretly in your wine press, but it's quite another thing to stand up for the Lord in public ways. And where does Gideon begin his public ministry? He cleans things up at home first. Judges chapter 6, verse 25 says, That night the Lord said to him, Take the bull from your father's herd as well as the second... Notice who's in charge of the story here. Not the Bible. Um, Jamie McMillan is. That's why he's a Martex, because he's not rightly handling this text. He needs to actually be exegeting it by reading it and letting the story unfold the way it is written for us in Scripture. He's not doing that. He's telling the story. He's making the theological points and then adding into his story that he's telling. He'll throw in a couple of verses to make it appear like he's he's telling you and teaching you the story of Gideon. But since we now know the story, we now know that... Well, Jamie is not actually teaching us what the story says. Second bull, one that is seven years old, pull down your father's Baal altar and cut down the nearby Asherah pole. Then build an altar for the Lord your God on top of this stronghold according to the proper pattern. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt sacrifice on the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and just did as the Lord had told him. He was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in broad daylight, so he waited to do it until nighttime. Even though he was still fearful, he was willing to begin to take the risk at home. Gideon's first public expression of his faith was at home. Yet home is sometimes the hardest place. First public expression? What on earth? Place to express your faith. You have an experience with God and nobody believes it. But the Bible teaches us that we need to express our faith at home first. In Timothy, it says that before you can ever lead in the body of Christ, you need to lead in your home first. The Bible also says that... Um, could you read that passage to me again? Because um, you didn't really actually read it there. I, I'd like to see what it says in context. I'm not sure I know if I agree with you or not. I might if you would actually engage in some exegesis here rather than all this eisegesis you're doing. The power, the power of the Spirit comes upon you and will make you witnesses in Jerusalem first before you ever get to the ends of the earth. Yeah, I've never been to Jerusalem, so how am I supposed to be a witness in Jerusalem first? Huh? Why is it so difficult to stand up for God at home? The Bible says in John 4 that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Maybe you've noticed this. People will go on a short-term missions trip, and as soon as they get on that plane, they are transformed into the evangelist. All of a sudden, they're in another country, and you're just looking at them like, whoa, did they go into a phone booth and put on a new suit? What's going on here? They're super evangelists. They're witnessing to people. They are just on fire for God. They're doing a great thing. And then all of a sudden, the suit goes away when they hit customs and they get home again. Or maybe uh, you know someone who is one way at the church, but at home their kids would tell you that it's a bit of a different story at home. Why is it so hard to stand up for God at home? 
Well, you see, at home, people see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's hard to preach to people who know your weaknesses. However, we must remember that God says, well, when you're weak, I'm strong. And I think we do a disservice when we just show our family the perfect side of us. And they only see us when we're in this perfect mode. They don't get to see God transform us from the weak person that we are. (laughs) What are you talking about? My family knows all of my weaknesses. Like, oh, man, (laughs) I couldn't hide them from my family if I tried. What planet are you from? Into being a person who serves the Lord. Oh, yeah, sorry, he's Canadian. The Lord. It's actually the process of transformation that teaches your family what Jesus is all about. Mom and Dad, you're not perfect. You never will be. You will try and you will try, but at some point your kids will catch you doing something that you shouldn't have done. But that is not the moment to all of a sudden just ignore it and pretend it didn't happen and just, uh, you know, don't talk to your kids about it. No, that's the moment at which you allow God's spirit to teach your children that you're not perfect, but you're being transformed by God. That is a learning moment. You know, it's, it's so funny. But if you read the, the story, Gideon chops down the Asherah pole, he takes down the altar, he does what God tells him to do at night, And in the morning time, there are some people who are angry. No, they're not just angry. They're vexed. (laughs) And they want to kill him for doing that. They want to take him out. And who stands up for Gideon? If you read that story, you will find that his father stands up for him. The very man who had the Asherah pole and the altar for Baal on his property and couldn't do it for himself finally saw his son stand up for God and instantly became brave. That's called influence. And when you stand up for God, even at home where you know that these people have seen you at your not-so-great moments, all of a sudden the Spirit of God will begin to transform the people around you, and you will begin to see great things happen. So he gets his life in order, he gets his home in order, and then Gideon begins to follow God's orders. And that's when we come to the point of the fleece. There's been a lot said about the fleece over the years. But with victory underneath his belt, Gideon issues a call across Israel to arms. And they responded, and Gideon became to to get a little bit nervous. It's one thing for a farmer to say, Someday I'm going to lead us into battle, and we're going to get rid of these Midianites. It's another thing to realize. Yeah, here's the problem, okay? Um, Y'all remember back when you were in elementary school and you had to give a book report? Your job when you gave the book report was to not actually relay all of the details of the story but summarize the story in such a way that you don't give away the you know the ending and and you 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 basically kind of wet people's appetite and make them want to read the story themselves okay that's the idea behind a book report you know but see here's the deal when a pastor stands in the pulpit or on a stage um he's not supposed to give a book report on the bible (laughs) no no like not at all you know, what he's supposed to do is actually read the text, exegete it, help us understand what's going on in the story and point, tell, tell us how this pick, you know, fits into the big story of salvation and what Christ is doing and has done for us. That's the idea. So he's not supposed to give a, a summary or a book report. He's actually supposed to engage in exegesis. 
Um, unfortunately here, our Martex for today has not figured that out, and he's trying to do um, a book summary or a story summary. And again, he's not actually exegeting anything. He's just picking out little p- bits and pieces of the story to fit into his summary. But his summary is the thing that he's telling, not the story of Gideon. Okay, we're ready. Cool. I'm actually going to lead you into battle and defeat the 135,000 Midianites. I was just joking. I was having a bad day, you know. All of a sudden, it comes real. It's really happening. And so our hero at that moment gets into a little discussion with the Lord, and he says, tell you what, if this is what you really want me to do, then you've got to give me a sign. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put a sheep's fleece out on the ground tonight. And in the morning, if the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, then, Lord, I'm your guy. So in Judges 6.38, we see that the Lord did as he asked. When he got up the next morning, he squeezed the fleece, and enough dew dripped from it to fill a bowl. But Gideon was not convinced. So he made this uh, agreement with God, and the Lord, by his grace, he didn't have to, but by his grace said, okay, Gideon, I'll do what you say. And then he rings out the fleece, and Gideon says, hold on. What do you think is going on in Gideon's mind at that moment? You say, oh, he's, what's wrong with that guy? He's a terrible guy. Oh, it's terrible. Just imagine you're about to lead yourself into battle against a humongous army. You want me to do, you want me to imagine, just imagine. Oh, no, he's doing the same thing that Robert Morris did. He's preaching from his... Yeah, see, that's a problem. You're not supposed to do that. Let's continue. God has called you to do this great thing, and you're a little bit nervous. Got to put it in context here. Gideon might have thought, well, I put the fleece out on the ground, but maybe fleece has different properties than grass, so grass dries quicker than fleece, so possibly the fleece, maybe it kept the water longer, and it's really just, really just a science thing, not a God thing. So he says, hold on. He says, yeah, because there were... All of these scientists in ancient Israel. God, what, well, let's try it another way. I don't, I don't want to get annoying, Lord. But let's try it another way. I'll leave the fleece out again tonight. And then if in the morning the grass is wet and the fleece is dry, I will know and I will listen to you. And he gets up the next morning and guess what? Grass is wet. The fleece is dry. Gideon's experiment has come to an end. He now realizes God has called him to do this. Knowing God's will can be a mysterious thing. It's not always straightforward. Knowing what he wants us to do and how to wait on him is a balancing act that can be very, very difficult. And Gideon is having trouble with this before he launches his men into battle. He needs to know that he knows that he knows. He has reassurance that this is what the Lord wants. It's not just what he wants, it's what the Lord wants. There was a time in my life where I needed to lay out a fleece before the Lord. You're not Gideon. So um, you don't need to do any fleecing, or well, laying out any fleeces. In my last church, when I left Malvern and I went to that church, we were meeting in a school gym. And over the course of time ministering there, about, after about a year and a half, I really felt that God wanted us to get our own building. 
And so we began to look for places to rent around the Durham region and in Oshawa, and the rent for commercial property was absolutely ridiculous. At the time that I went there, we were only a church of 25 people. We had two pastors who needed to have salaries and provide for their families. How could we ever afford our own facility? But I couldn't escape the fact that I felt the Spirit of the Lord telling me that we needed to do this. Well, after a few months of searching, we found an old warehouse that was uh, up for... Up for rent. It used to be a dance studio. That's where I learned all the stuff that you saw earlier. (laughs) It'll be out on video later. And so it was the best price that we had seen. And although it was a lot of work to transform that studio into into a church... We really, as soon as I walked in the building, I thought to myself, I thought, this is, this is the right place. This is the right place. And so I began to look into the details of what it would take for us to get that place. And one of the details was is that we had to sign a lease for four years. And the way this company worked was we couldn't sign the lease as Life Church Oshawa. It had to be Jamie McMillan's name on the lease for four years. And if the church couldn't come up with the money to pay the lease, Jamie McMillan would need to find a way to sell his children or something like that to pay the lease. And I remember being very nervous about that. And so, although I had felt the Lord confirming in my heart that this was what we were supposed to do, I said to a close confidant of mine, I said, "Uh, listen, I realize that this property is significantly less expensive than any other property in the city. And people are probably lined up to take it. But I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to Ottawa for a week. I'm going away. And I'm going to leave it. And if the building is still here when we come back, I, will, I think that will be my sign that this is our chance to move. If it's gone, then I will know that this wasn't what God had for us. Of course, the person with me was like, oh, come on. Can't we do this? I mean, like, we're going to lose it. And I was like, nope. We've got to do this. And so I went away for a week. And when I came back, I talked to the real estate agent. He said, well, there was a lot of people looking at it, but nobody had signed yet. And I took that as my sign. And we signed that lease and turned that dance studio into our church. Had a nice cushy floor for dancing. It was great. But I had to lay out that fleece. So I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe So that was the fleece phase. You know, because you got your wine press phase, the hoo ha me phase, and, and the fleece phase, apparently, and the experience with God phase. And God is calling you to do a big thing. There's nothing wrong with taking some time to make sure it's the will of God. But once you get that fleece, and once you get that sign that you've been waiting for, you got to move. You can't stay in the fleece forever or else there'll be no victory. And so that's what Gideon did. And so he realizes this is what God wants. He is confident. He is ready to go. He makes a call out and he says, we are going to get rid of these Midianites. We're going to attack them. Let's go do this. So he calls the army and 32,000 people show up. You think, wow, that's a big army. Well, it is a big army except for the fact that they are facing 135,000 Midianites. Odds are just under five to one. But he had the fleece. He knew the Lord was with them. So he was like, I got confidence. We can do this. Let's do this. 32,000 guys. Let's go get these Midianites. And God says, you got too many people. This is the, are you kidding me moment? The Lord says, you have too many people. Okay. What I want you to do. So you got the, um, the, the wine press phase, the hoo ha ha me phase. 
the experience with God phase, the fleece phase, and now the the what phase again? Because this story isn't some pattern that I'm supposed to follow in my life like at all. What I do is I want you to talk to the troops and I want you to let them know that if they are afraid and they don't want to go into battle, then you can let them go. So Gideon gets his head around this and he puts out the call and he says, if you're afraid to go into battle, if you are fearful, then you can pick up your stuff and go home. 22,000 troops pick up their stuff and go home. You ever been like that with a group of friends? They're like, let's do this. We're going to do this. Then you get to the door and you're like, where'd everybody go? That's what's going on here. So Gideon knows that this is what the Lord wants. Yes, if somehow we're supposed to relate this to pieces of your life. I can't relate at all. Um, I'm not Gideon. I haven't had a face-to-face with Jesus. Um, in, in these phases, the way you're narcissistically isogeting it, yeah, I've never had 22,000 troops just abandon me there. I've never had to use 300 feral ancient Israelites to conquer Midian either. Um, yeah, so I'm having a hard time relating here wants he had already been through the fleece he's got his head around it and then he's got 10,000 troops left and he's like okay well with 32,000 this plan might have worked and we could have beat the Midianites we're pretty strong guys and we're tough and we can do this and we've got the Lord's strength but now we got 10,000 guys but maybe if we have the right plan and we all line up and we make ourselves look like there's more of us and we've got a great plan maybe then we can still defeat the Midianites Get my head around this. Okay. All right. 10,000 guys. You ready? Let's go. And the Lord says, you got too many people. Wow. Too many. There's 13.5 of them to every one of us. And we got too many. All right. And the Lord says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go down to a creek. And you're going to let these guys drink the water. Those who stay standing and stay on guard and lap the water up with their hands and drink it, those are the guys you want to keep. Because Why aren't you actually reading this out of the Bible? Why are you summarizing it? Because they're ready. The guys who abandon everything for their thirst, and they go down and they get right on their knees and they drink the water directly from the stream, tell them to go home. So they go to the stream, and only 300 guys stand up and drink the water. Everybody else goes home. So now Gideon has 300 troops. You know the movie 300? That's where it came from. 300 troops, him versus the Midianites. That's all they got. And God says, now I want you to feed these, this group of 135,000 people. Praise the Lord. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? You got this rag. Here we go again. I'm using your imagination, which is not what you're supposed to be doing. We continue. Tag group of Israelite people, scared, I'm sure, shaking in their boots, and you're going to defeat the Midianite army. So God says, Gideon, I realize you're nervous, so I'm going to give you a sign. He says, I want you to go down to the enemy's camp. And I'm trying to make shorten this up this morning. He says, I want you to go down to the enemy's camp, and I want you to listen to what they're saying. So Gideon goes down to the enemy's camp. And this is all in, in chapter 7. And he goes down there. You know, you're, you can read it. It's not like you have to be anywhere. Um, 
yeah, serious. You can actually take the time I did to, you know, just read the story, preach the text. And they listen to what the enemy is saying. And so this guy, this group of guys, they're, they're talking. And the first one says, I had the strangest, this is Midianites talking. I had the strangest dream last night. I dreamt that a loaf of barley bread rolled down the hill into the camp and flattened one of our tents. And the second guy looks at him and he says, you know what, your dream can only mean one thing. This guy Gideon that we've heard about, his men and his armies are going to whip us. And Gideon took that dream as a sign from the Lord, went back to camp, rallied the 300 troops. And he says, get up. It's time for us to take the Midianite army. Let's do this. Why does God put Gideon through all this? Why does he, go, why does he put him through this? He, he... Well, the way you're preaching the text, I could only come to one conclusion. Um, so that I know how to handle the similar situations in my life. You know, when I'm in the wine press phase and the hoo-ha-ha-me phase and the fleecing phase, whatever. He finally gets up enough guts, even though he's five to one odds, gets the 32,000 guys. He's going to go beat the army. Then it gets reduced to one versus 13, gets his head around that, still in faithfulness, says, let's do this. Then reduces the army down to 300 guys. You know why he does that? Because God is proving to not only Gideon, but to the Israelites that you can't do this, but I can. See, when you got 32,000 guys versus 135,000 guys and they win, the stories that come back are going to be like, you should have seen us, man. I had five guys at once and I was throwing knives and doing ninja stars. It was crazy. It was crazy. I got all Israelite in the house and then we just, we made it happen story would have been about them and their great battle exploits. 10,000 people. They would have been like, we stood around, we made a circle, you know, we did what we could, we got our swords out, and 10,000 of us, through this great plan that we had, defeated the Midianites. But when you've only got 300, (laughs) all you can say is, I don't know how we could have ever done this, because we didn't. God did it. God brought them to a place where they realized that they couldn't do it and that God can do it. And I want to tell you this morning that the victory in your life is already yours. It's already been won. This dream, this dream is very significant because what rolls down the hill and flattens their tent? It's a loaf of bread. And I want to tell you this morning that the bread of life comes into your life and he flattens the enemy. He flattens. Now, this is true to a point, okay? Yes. But what are the promised enemies that are flattened by the bread of life, Jesus Christ? Sin, death, the devil, hell. Christ hasn't promised to rescue you from a bad hair day. He has not promised to make sure that your marriage is going to be the most amazing ever. He has not conquered the enemy of debt in your life or anything like that. Although he can rescue you through those terrible situations of your life. But the specific promise is that you're reconciled to God by Christ's shed blood on the cross. Let's see what he does with this. 
flattens the enemy. It doesn't matter if it's sickness. It doesn't matter if there's an attack on your house. It doesn't matter if there's an attack on your finances. When you oh brother, it's like you missed the whole point. I mean, here, yeah, you got it. You got us to Jesus from this text. Yeah, great job. Okay, keying in on the bread of life, brilliantly done. That's a great way to get there. But where does Jesus promise to overcome the debt monster or things like that? He can rescue us out of those situations. Oftentimes, he has us have to suffer through it. But what is it that he saves us from? The sure and certain promises are the forgiveness of sins. You allow the bread of life to come into your situation, you win. You win. You win. We're promised suffering in this life. So that brings us to the battle, to our last slide this morning. And this is a very significant part of the story because you've got Gideon getting his life in order. You've got Gideon getting his house in order. You've got Gideon following orders. And now you've got the enemy running for the border. You see, I know it rhymed. I worked on that a long time just to let you know. The army gets thrown into confusion. Here's the actual story. It says that Gideon took a hundred men to the edge of the camp and beginning at the middle of watch, they changed their guards. They blew their trumpets. They broke jars they were carrying. And as they blew their trumpets and they broke their jars, they held torches in their left hand and trumpets in their right. And they yelled for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. And they stood in order all around the camp. The whole army ran away. And as they shouted and scrambled away, when they shouted and scrambled away when the 300 men blew their trumpets and the lords called Midian to attack one another with their swords throughout the camp. And those who were not killed fled to places as far away as the border. They ran for the border. God caused confusion amongst them. They started killing each other. And those who didn't get killed, they ran away. Now, I want you to notice something in this battle. We can go to the next slide. The enemy flees, but the tools that they used were very interesting. They used a horn. They used a jar, and they used a torch. I would have used a really big gun, but no, they didn't. That's what they used. They used a horn. What does the horn illustrate? See, the horn in the Bible is very much a proclamation. When there's a proclamation coming, when there's an announcement to be made... They would blow the shofar. They would blow the horn. The horn is the gospel, is your testimony. When you have a proclamation to make, when you have something to announce, you blow the horn. And so that's what they did. They blew the horn. And then they smashed the jar. Well, what does that mean? Smashing jars all over the place. It's like, opa, what's going on? I don't understand. We see the jar is an earthen vessel. And actually, in Corinthians, it talks about it. It, 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 says, it says this in Corinthians 4. It says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord. Yeah. Um, you're not exactly pulling it off, though. And ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And although we're hard-pressed on every side, we are crushed 
but we are not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. The jar represents you. You are that jar of clay. And when that jar of clay is cracked, the light comes through it. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, pious allegorizing now. Yeah, see, I wasn't there at that. Uh, never mind. And that's when you get to see the light of Jesus. So they smash the jar. So I get to see the light of Jesus when I'm a cracked pot. Got it. Jar. They blow the horn. They say, we're going to make an announcement. We're going to ignore our flesh, and we're going to show you truly who God is. <laughs> I don't think that's what any of that meant. Not historically. This morning, in your life, you've got something that's bothering you. How do you know? Yes, it's all of these pastors who are mangling God's word and engaging in narcissistic eisegesis. Do you think that maybe I could use a crack pot to fix that with a torch? You're like that clay pot that is crushed and there's maybe a crack in it. And maybe your life's not perfect, but the light shows through that crack in your life when you allow God to be revealed. Uh Uh-huh. Gideon went through a transformation, and that's really what this story is about. No, I thought it was about Jesus rescuing his people and uh, that the Lord is peace, you know, things like that. That's uh... Gideon, Gideon, the bitter farmer who's threshing wheat and hiding from the Midianite army. He's the bitter farmer. Uh huh. He's at the bottom of the hill under a tree, hiding, threshing wheat. So nobody can see him. That's where we meet Gideon, but God calls him mighty warrior. And at the end of the story, we see a mighty warrior who's standing on top of the hill, proclaiming the word of God and declaring the light of God to that army. And really declaring the word of God by revealing a torch from out of a pot. Uh Uh-huh. What does he say when he attacks? He says, for the sword of the Lord and Gideon. The very person who didn't want anybody to know his name. The very person who was the small guy who said, not my tribe, I'm the smallest in my family. All of a sudden is a really bad man. (laughs) And he's like, what? For God and for Gideon, we're going to get you. Because he stepped into his destiny. He stepped into what God said he would be. God called him a mighty warrior. And it was at that moment that he realized, I am stepping into what God called me to be. This morning, God calls you mighty warrior. This morning, I want you to... No, he doesn't. ...to know that you have victory in Jesus. Yeah, I do, but not quite the way you're saying it. This morning, I want you to know the enemy cannot steal, rob, and destroy from you anymore. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And because God says, I am with you, you can have the victory. You indeed are an overcomer. 
You can whoop them, Gideon. I thought Jesus was the one who overcame. Weird. How did it become me? Gideon style. <laughs> whoop them, Gideon style. Yeah, I got to get back to that <clears throat> song, huh? You just need to learn to have that personal experience with Jesus. To stand up for God. Yeah, well, notice that... Um, Gideon wasn't looking for any experiences, wasn't trying to have an experience. He was minding his own business, hiding from the Midianites in the wine press. Ah! God, first at your home and then throughout the earth. And then follow what God tells you to do and follow his will. And when you do that and you get God in the right place in your life, the enemy is going to run for the border. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand with me. All right, we're done. So there you go. The Masloration by Martext. Uh, J- Jamie McMillan of Malvern Christian Assembly up there in Toronto, Canada. Oh, man. We did get a gospel nugget, though. I mean, it doesn't exactly make it worth the haul, but there you go. Yeah, how to take a Bible story about Jesus and make it about you in five easy dance steps. Sad, sad. And more sad. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>